0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me once again uh, to Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, otherwise known as the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen behind me as the, the passage will pop up there in just a moment. Uh, but I do encourage you to bring your Bibles. I do this from time to time, Um, and keep your Bibles open as we work through a passage as I refer to it. Uh, I'm not in the business, as I hope you know, as I hope you've experienced, of simply reading a verse and then kind of going off in my own flight of fancy uh, about what I think. I I want to, as best I can, um, convey what God is saying in His Word. And so uh, that requires you to, uh, to be examining it for yourself and to be following along with me. This is eight Uh, This is week eight in our study of this book of the Bible, uh, a book in which the Apostle Paul has sought to counteract an influence that is happening in these young first century churches, namely false teachers who have come into these churches calling these young Christians back to the ceremonial law, to the outward Ritual of the Mosaic Law. Essentially, what they have been saying—if that sounded confusing to you—essentially, what these false teachers have been saying is: Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You you need to do this too. And so Paul, in this letter, could not be more concerned or burdened. These are churches that he is well acquainted with, well invested in, and we've seen this a bit in his uh, writing. It's been passionate. Jesus is enough. He has sought to argue again and again, and, and to argue this, he spoke about his own conversion, uh, in chapters one and two, he spoke about the Galatians experience of the Holy Spirit in chapter three. He spoke about uh, the Old Testament history and, and made the case from, from Moses and Abraham about why we ought to be people of the promise and not people of the law. And then last week when we were together, he spoke about real life human examples, namely the last will and testament. And then last week, we would really say it was the climax of his argument where he says, you who were once slaves are now sons and are now one. We talked about what that means to be adopted as sons, to be, to be one as God's people, unity amidst Diversity. Well, as we continue today, we come really to what is an interesting section in the letter, one that is uh, less argumentative. What I mean by that is it's less built on argument, and it's much more personal, much more pastoral, And so let's uh, read and and listen. I encourage you to uh, stand if you're able uh, for the reading of God's word as I read it. Uh, Galatians chapter four, verses eight through 20. Picking up where we left off last week. Galatians four, verses eight through 20. Listen as I read. Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God,' You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain." What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They they, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. Perhaps you've had this same experience. I certainly have. It's an experience that I might say is common in a broken world such as ours. It's the experience of sitting with someone you love, pleading with them not to return to their old ways. Maybe a a destructive, dead-end relationship, maybe an addiction that they just can't seem to shake. And you plead with them, only to find out later that they have gone back and that they're stuck once again. In a sense, this has been the whole of the letter of Galatians this is what paul has been doing but but nowhere do we see the humanity of what's happening here in these churches and in paul's own heart as we as we see here in chapter 4 verses 8 through 20 paul is a perplexed pastor He's a perplexed pastor that here is making a passionate plea. Why would you go back there? Don't go back there. As I came to this passage this week, it was, uh, just to be frank, it was a challenge to think about how how to preach this. And how to package it in such a way where it became meaningful to you in your lives and not just something, oh, that's interesting about the Apostle Paul. And so what I've been led to this morning are two truths that that I think will challenge us from this passage. As we think in our context, as we digest these words, thinking about our own tendencies. And so the first truth is, is this, and then we'll unpack it. You were made for relationship, not ritual. You, brothers and sisters, were made for relationship, not ritual. And when I talk about relationship, I'm talking about a vertical relationship. Relationship i not talking about the relationships that we were made with one another. We talked about that last week, but I'm talking primarily about this vertical relationship. You see, flowing from the last few verses that we looked at last week in the beginning of chapter four, Paul seems to camp out, actually in the end of chapter three, Paul seems to camp out this week on the relational privilege of calling Yahweh Abba. Father, on this relational aspect of what our lives as Christians are to be about. If you have your Bibles with you, let's just focus for a few moments. Actually, for most of our time, we're going to focus on the first four verses, verses 8 through 11. You can look at them there with me. Two things seem to be contrasted in verses 8 through 11. Enslavement by idols and being known by God. What Paul seems to be doing, first of all, is is addressing the Gentile converts in these churches. You see, there were two types of people, right? There were the Jews who had grown up generation upon generation with God's law, They're having a hard time shedding it. Then there was the Gentiles who had grown up in a completely different environment, a completely secular and pagan environment. And now both are in Christ and they both come from different places. They both have their different issues. And then you have these Judaizers coming in saying, you need more than just faith in Jesus. You need faith plus all the things that have been part of our religion in the past. But here in these verses, he seems, at least on the outset, to be addressing Gentile converts, those who are not Jews. And that would make sense because, you see, this region, which is modern-day Turkey, this region of ancient minor, the cities of Galatia, they had a history of pagan deities. You might remember in Acts 14 when the Apostle Paul was in was in Lystra with Barnabas, and, and he healed a man. They, they wanted to tell him, they wanted to say Barnabas was Zeus, they wanted to say Paul was Hermes, and the priest from the temple of Zeus even brought animals out to Paul and Silas in order for them to be sacrificed. In Iconium, they worshiped the mother goddess Zizamene. And then beyond that, the people of this day, they worshipped a myriad of Greek gods. They watched the stars in order for astrological signs. And they were all part in some way of the Roman imperial cult. And so the churches of Galatia, they knew about paganism. They knew about pagan deities. In fact, many believe that every element of creation was in and of itself a God. The earth, the sun, the wind, fire, even even wine had its own God. So when Paul says in verse 9 of our text this morning, the elementary principles of this world This is, I think, what he's talking about. This this phrase has already appeared in this letter, and we talked about it just briefly. Because there's another way to understand this. There's another way to translate it. It's a difficult word to translate, the Greek word that's used there. But the Greek word is used in other places as spirits. Spirits. It's used that way in Persian religious text and astrological documents and in other Jewish writings as well. Giving it this supernatural sense. And so when Paul says elementary principles of this world, he could very well be saying, and I think he is saying, elemental principles of this world or elemental powers of this world. So, so in other words, and hang on with me for a sec. in other words, Paul is saying that these essentially non-gods, which Satan and his forces are ultimately behind, which you Gentiles used to all be about, which used to enslave you with all types of rituals and requirements and gave you no assurance as to whether you have done enough to appease the gods, You weren't made for that. You were made for relationship, not ritual. Remember what Paul just went through, what we talked about last week. There he was talking to the Jews primarily in Galatia. Those who had for generations upon generations been under the law, the law serving as a strict governess, as a disciplinarian in their lives until Jesus came born under the law to redeem those bound to it in order to release them from slavery and make them sons. You see, Paul is saying that the gospel is about what God has done relationally. And it's not even that you have come to know God, it is that God has come to know you. You have been known by God, verse nine he says. In the Bible, knowing is always more than mere intellectual assent. Knowing implies intimate, personal relationship and this has come to us by God's own initiative, by God's own grace. You and I have been adopted through Christ, we've been made heirs, we've been made sons. And so Paul is saying, why would you go back, Gentiles, to that enslavement of pagan deities? Why would you go back, Jews, to the enslavement of that law when you've been given Jesus? You see, the Gentiles, under their elemental forces, they share a common enslavement with the Jews under the law. And it's true, that's the crux of the issue in Galatia, is that some Jews had confused the symbols with the realities that they were meant to point to. In other words, it became all about religion. It became all about ritual. And so Paul says in in verse 10, he may be looping the Jews back in here. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, he might be referring to the pagan festivals of the Greeks, of the Gentiles. Or he's bringing up, as he does elsewhere, how Jews had made the ceremonial law something that it was never intended to be. And so he writes in Colossians 2.16, Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul is saying to the Jews is that those things were never meant to give life in and of themselves, but rather to point to the one who is life. We were made, brothers and sisters, for joyful communion, not the burdens of ritual and religion. So the question is, how does that hit us, or how should that hit us, as we sit here in 21st century America as Christians? Well, I think it hits us from two different angles. It hits us from the Gentile angle and the Jew angle from a worldly sense and a religious sense. And I hope this makes sense to you and your heads as it did to mine this week as I was putting, putting this together and thinking about it. You see, letting, letting this word come to us as, as Gentiles, as, and what I mean by that is those who are not Jews, as those who were once part of the world, but have been made new, have been given new hearts and have been made new creations. We are reminded as Gentiles of our tendency to idolatry. Not carved wooden things that we set on our mantle and bow down to, but anything that takes the place of God. Where we take good things in our lives and we make them ultimate things. Tim Keller, pastor and author in our denomination, a name many of you know well, he says this about these words here in Galatians 4. He says, Paul says the only alternative to the gospel is idolatry. Nobody is an unbeliever in the truest sense of the term. You either believe in the true God or else you are a slave to worshiping something that you treat as a God, but really isn't. And so for the Christian, he says, whenever you have blown it, you should say, what is it that has taken the place of God? What is so important to me that it has the place of God? That's why the Apostle John in his letter, which is entitled 1 John, after going on and on about how we need to love one another, we need to be the church, we need to overcome the world, and a host of other things, he closes the letter of 1 John, in 1 John five twenty one with this pithy statement, little children, keep yourself from idols. Why does he do that? Because he's recognizing that at the heart of our sin, is idolatry at the heart of our sin is putting something else in place of the God who alone deserves to be front and center. And so keeping ourselves from idols involves keeping our eyes and our worship on the God who loves us and has saved us and Jesus has made us his sons and it's that good news and digesting that good news and dwelling in that good news that then directs our lives. So that's, that's hearing this from the Gentile worldly angle. And then the other angle is the Jewish angle. You see, I don't want you to leave here. Hear me, I don't want you to leave here or get up from your couch, if you're watching at home, with the impression that rituals are bad or that organized religion ought to be abandoned in order that we can focus on relationships. Some people say that. That's not what I'm saying. It's true. You were made for relationship, not for ritual. But the rituals serve a purpose, a vital purpose. And so for generations upon generations, the ceremonies of the Jewish law, they served as shadows, as pointers to something that was coming, something better, something fuller. In much the same way that we now seated here, having, having seen Christ, having been told of His work, By eyewitnesses to that truth. The religion that we practice this morning is meaningful. It's needed. The liturgy, the, the supper, which we'll partake in just a few minutes, it all serves a purpose, but it's not an end in and of itself. It all points to Jesus, it all points to that relationship. And yet, just like the Jews of old, just like the Jews of old, we sometimes like ritual as an end in and of itself. We like to check a box. We like to write down an achievement that we can present to God. Look what I've done. And in doing so, we fail to let the ritual Point us to the relationship, to the reason for it all. You remember, those of you who know the Scriptures a little bit, the story of the prodigal son, or as it's sometimes called, the, the story of the lost sons. Right? There were two sons in that story, not just one, who took his inheritance and squandered it, came back begging to be a slave of the father. There were two sons, and both sons were alienated from the father. Neither had the father's heart, right? So you have the younger son who flees and turns his back on his father and rebels and chases after idols of of pleasure, We might say that was the Gentile response. And then you have the older son who remained with the father and yet was enslaved by the external formalism of being faithful to his father, of doing what his father said rather than seeing his father, rather than having relationship with his father and seeing his father's love for what it was. That was the Jew. And what's the message of the father to both the rebellious young son and the faithful son who stayed? To the licentious and to the religious, the father opens his arms and says, your sons, both of you, not slaves. This is about relationship. It's about my love for you, not your faithfulness. That's Brothers and sisters, is the good news. And that is why we're here this morning and every Lord's Day morning. And I know that some of you really struggle with this this being pressing into the relational aspect of, of Jesus. But I just want to encourage you, keep crying out to the God who is there. Keep reminding yourself as you come here. Keep reminding one another who we are and whose we are. Because at the end of the day, we were made for relationship, not ritual. That's the first truth. And the second is this. Invite the world to what you have become invite the world to what you have become if you have your bibles open this is what we're we're moving now into verses 12 through 20. you know in high school there was a uh, commercial that was on tv i was a basketball player and uh, loved this commercial felt this commercial in my heart The words were, sometimes I dream that he is me, I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. It's one of the famous Gatorade commercials from the 90s, late 80s. Michael Jordan, who was the basketball star of that age, Gatorade had a hit on their hands there. I still remember the tune, but I have refrained from singing it to you this morning. Paul makes this bold, almost arrogant claim, right? In verse 12, he says, guys, be like me. Become like me. As we move into these verses, verses 12 and and following, things get more personal now than they've ever been in this letter as Paul gives us a glimpse not only of his heart and his life, but of his pastoral burden his pastoral burden, and, and his relationship with these people to whom he's writing. You see, throughout this whole controversy, Paul, Paul has gone, and he's lamented this fact, he laments this fact, Paul has gone from being viewed as an angel, verse 14, right? As a messenger from God, as, as Christ Jesus himself who, who came with good news, as an authoritative teacher, to now suddenly becoming public enemy number one, maligned by these false teachers, all for speaking the truth, Paul says. And he goes into this kind of elaborate, what happened? And we don't know exactly what happened. We just know as much as he tells us here. Paul states that there was a time when providentially, because in Paul's worldview, as in our worldview, there are, there are no coincidences, there are no, are no accidents. So Paul states that providentially he was detained with these churches. He was stuck in Galatia for some time because of a bodily ailment. And in the midst of the burden that that placed on these people, they still loved him, they still received him and his message. And Paul laments that that those days are gone. And and it genuinely hurts. I mean, do you hear that? Do you feel that in Paul's writing? We tend to think about Paul as this this stoic intellectual and and nothing more. And, And sure, he had a sharp mind. But Paul was a pastor who loved these people. He calls them children. And he's burdened for them. He's broken for them. Now the bodily ailment that we all want to know about, because that's the kind of thing we want to know about. Well, why did he stay there? What was going on? We we don't know what was going on. Paul tells the Corinthian church about a thorn in his flesh that God keeps there in order to allow him, uh, or in order to refrain from him being conceited. So maybe the thorn in the flesh and this are one in the same. Verse 15, if you look at it there with me, gives us an indication that this might have something to do with his eyes. Right? Because he he makes this stark comment that they were once willing to gouge their eyes out and give them to Paul. So, So maybe there was some issue with Paul's eyes. He does close the book of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 11, by noting the large letters with which he writes, almost as if his eyesight was hindered in some way. Whatever the ailment was, the Galatians' response to it seemed to point to their love and their trust of Paul and his message. And now here he is, he's just perplexed and he's in anguish. I mean, he's utterly confused that flattering lips with a message of enslavement have somehow trumped his message of sonship through Jesus alone. How could this happen? And so he simply pleads, brothers, verse 12, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul has wrapped his life around spreading the gospel. He'll say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all people in order that I might save some. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of souls, Paul wanted to be whoever he needed to be in order that people would understand and hear the gospel. And now he invites his hearers to the same kind of thing. to imitate him, as he has abandoned reliance on the law, as he has experienced freedom in Jesus, as he has made his life about Jesus, now he wants everybody to do the same thing. And so this isn't at all like, be like Mike. Mike. No, this is like, be like Paul because Paul wants you to see Jesus. And of course, there's an incredible challenge for us as the church in these words. Even though Paul is a pastor and most of you aren't, there still is a gospel principle here. And it's this, we make ourselves like others in order to make them like us. We invite the world to become what we have become. And of course, there's an assumption in that encouragement that we have become something. That we have experienced something different than the world around us. That we are living our lives different than the world around us. That we actually possess something, that we possess someone that those who know us and interact with us would actually want. A relationship that brings hope and promise, a freedom that brings joy and peace. Not just religion, but a person a relationship, the person of Jesus. So the challenge, brothers and sisters, for me, for you, the challenge is, is that the heartbeat of your days? Is Jesus the vine, the life that you've got to stay connected to? Or else you're going to shrivel and die? Or is it all about ritual? Is it all about just checking a box, following the rules, keeping your nose clean? Or is it about experiencing the life that is in Jesus and Jesus alone? I hope it's the latter. I pray that it's the latter. May God give us the grace and help to make it, make it so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, for this very personal passage from the Apostle Paul about his life, about his heart, about what he wants to see formed in those who know him and interact with him and, and learn from him. And though we we confess that we don't have the intellect, we don't have the heart, we don't have the faith that the Apostle Paul did, but Lord, we want to be used by you in the same way. As our hearts are drawn into the heart of Jesus, as his life becomes our life, and the two become inseparable, and as that becomes evident to those around us, Oh, Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Take this word and accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish in the lives of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.